good morning and happy Super Bowl Sunday. We'll get out of here before the game. We're going to cover the whole book of Ecclesiastes. <laughs> but I, I am, I'm serious, and, and yeah, we will get out of here before the game, I promise you. Um, you know, re- reading uh, the, the first couple verses of Ecclesiastes where Solomon says it's all meaningless. Uh, what a thing to be reminded of on Super Bowl Sunday. I mean, of, of all things, you know, you, you've got these two teams, uh, and a team consists of, you know, 50-plus guys plus the coaches, I mean, and all of them are seeking this moment of glory that'll follow after the game if they win, if they win. And for a lot of them, they're thinking, man, this is going to be a life-defining moment. This is what my whole life has been about. It's all led up to this point. And Solomon says, it's meaningless. It's meaningless. And I'm reminded of guys like Junior Seau, one of the greatest players, one of the greatest defensive players of all times, and how just a few years ago, he won a Super Bowl ring. And he had to feel like, man, I'm, I'm on top of the world, only within the last year to commit suicide after his career was done. Meaningless. It's all meaningless. You know, when I, was a, when I was a dealer in the casinos of Las Vegas, dealing card games, I somehow ma- uh, managed to avoid making a whole lot of meaningful relationships with other dealers that I worked with, which, trust me, was a good thing. Uh, most of the dealers that I knew, they liked to do things like party, they, they liked to go out and drink. A lot of them did, did drugs. Uh, they do drug tests, you know, for casino dealers, but these guys did it anyway. Uh, you know, they, they, the guys couldn't stand their wives. The girls I knew, you know, most of them, if they were married, they didn't like their husbands. And almost all of them hated their jobs. But there was one guy I was friends with, however, named, uh, named Robert. And Robert was just as miserable as I was with dealing. He was just as miserable as anybody else was with dealing table games. But he was a, a pretty intelligent, um, well-educated guy. And so he was at least able to be kind of funny, kind of witty, uh, when he talked about how much he hated dealing. In fact, if I remember correctly, he had actually graduated from UC Santa Barbara, which is a, a really good university, um, and he had gone on to be a high school teacher for a number of years in Las Vegas. Uh, and so when he would tell his story to people, you know, when you're dealing blackjack or craps, you know, sometimes people will ask, you know, Do, have you always done this? Is this your dream? And, you know, oh, yeah, I've always dreamed about, you know. No, and, and so he'd have kind of a, a funny way of, of answering that. You know, they'd ask him, why did you get out of teaching? And witty as always, which is probably why I remember it so clearly, uh, he'd say, I got out of teaching because I wanted to make a difference in the world. And... Uh, <laughs> Of course, you know, the, the, the irony of a statement like that is that if somebody wanted to make a difference in the world, they'd go from, from dealing table games to, to being a teacher, but he's, you know, twist, turning it around. Um, and, and having known Robert pretty well, uh, what I came to realize is that he really did want to make a difference in the world. But teaching in public schools in Las Vegas was not only uh, extremely tiring, uh, a lot of work, but it didn't pay very well either. And so, you know, Robert wanted to make a difference in the world and he wanted to make a decent living. And he got to the point where he felt as if he had to choose one or the other. And so he chose to make a difference in his own world, in his own life, by leaving a career in teaching 
and moving to dealing table games in a casino. Friends, you and I are called to make a difference in the world. And I would like to propose, I'd like to advance the idea that it doesn't matter if you are a convenience store clerk, it doesn't matter if you are a pastor, it doesn't even matter if you are the President of the United States, no matter where you fall in that spectrum, from the bottom to the top, you can make a difference. And here's the kicker. Every single one of us has only one chance One chance, one life to make it happen. And what a wonderful thing to be reminded of because honestly, it is so easy for us to waste the one chance that we have. So don't let your life go to waste. Don't let the opportunities that you have to make a difference go to waste. But I'm getting ahead of myself here because I'm assuming that we all know what makes a life meaningful. How can we live a meaningful life with the one chance that we have if we don't know what it is that makes life meaningful? And so with that said, allow me to back up and talk about meaningfulness today. If we don't know what makes anything meaningful, we're like blind monkeys throwing darts at a dartboard. Now, what if you had the opportunity to ask the wisest person who has ever lived what makes life meaningful? I hope you would take advantage of that opportunity. And in fact, that is the question that the book of Ecclesiastes seeks to answer. And it's most likely, this book is most likely the last thing written, at least that we have in our Bibles, by King Solomon, who, as we all know, was the wisest person to ever walk the face of the earth, the only exception being none other than Jesus. Now, the book of Ecclesiastes, has anybody ever read all the way through this? Most people haven't. Uh, Most people get to maybe the end of the first chapter and they're like, everything's meaningless, so why am I reading this? You know, (laughs) it's one of those books that uh, it's actually considered by what seems like the majority of commentators and scholars to be the one book that is far, far, far more difficult to understand than any other book in the Bible. Some believe that it was written by Solomon after a long and steep backslide, that it was written in the middle of his backslidden nature. Uh, some believe that uh, you know, it contradicts itself in places, and you know, maybe it does seem to kind of contradict itself in places, but I would add to that that if the wisest man ever in the history of the world, aside from Jesus, seems to sometimes contradict himself, don't you think there might be a good reason for that? See, everything that he writes, it all supports the point and the purpose of the book. And I personally don't believe that God would give me a book with 12 chapters in it if it has no clear and definitive point, and if it has no application to my life. It's more than just the ramblings of this old, bitter rationalist. You know, if, if I want that, you know, I, I could go out and watch a Michael Moore movie. Or, wait, did I say rationalist? Michael Moore doesn't fit that bill, does he? Uh, the fact is that in a culture that is so materialistically driven, there is a huge huge need for us to proclaim the underlying message in the book of Ecclesiastes. The importance of making our one chance count for something. 
doesn't get overlooked by most people. Most people know, ah, I, I've got to make a difference in this world. I've got, I've got one chance and I'm going to make it count. But the majority of people, the importance of making that, that one chance count for something that actually matters, that's what people miss. That's what the majority of people miss. There's a huge difference between knowing I want to make a difference in this world and making a difference that actually matters. As with all the books of the Bible... You know, the, the words of, of this book of Ecclesiastes were inspired by God. They were breathed out by God through Solomon for our personal benefit and for our benefit as a body as well. That being doctrine, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. That's from 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. The reality is that the message of this book, the underlying theme of this book, this entire book is not like some code that's uncrackable. It's not like nobody can figure this out if they don't set their minds to it. In fact, the purpose of this book can be found pretty much the same way that you would find it in almost any book. If you were to go to a bookstore and you wanted to know what a book is about uh, without reading the back cover, there are two places that you would look. You would look in the beginning and you'd look at the end because the conclusion will be a pretty strong indication of what has led up to that point. And we, we could just start with a quick reminder of how he ends the book of Ecclesiastes, which is a verse that we, or a passage that we saw last week, Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verses 13 and 14. His conclusion to this entire book is this. The conclusion, when all has been heard, is fear God and keep his commandments, because this applies to every person. For God will bring every act to judgment, everything which is hidden, whether it is good or evil. And the book ends right there. That is the conclusion. And that's a pretty good hint at what the entire book of Ecclesiastes is all about. But let's now turn to the preface of the book, which we would find at the beginning. Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Solomon writes, The words of the preacher, son of David, king in Jerusalem. By the way, that's how we know that this is Solomon. Also, in in places he talks about how he had uh, this gift of wisdom, and we'll get to that later. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. And of course, that word vanity in other translations gets translated as meaningless. That's one way, that's what vanity basically means. It's used, the term... uh, Vanity or meaningless is used to refer to a mist or a vapor. When you go out at night and you breathe into the cold air and you see this puff of condensation and it's there for a second and then it's gone and it's never coming back. It's just gone forever. That's, uh, that's what it refers to, you know, things that vanish within seconds. Interestingly, this word also gets translated as idols, For example, in Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 21, God says, They have made me jealous with what is not God. They have provoked me to anger with their idols. Same word. Very interesting. So what can we gather from the preface of the book? What is the author, what is Solomon trying to tell us? Well, considering that he uses this Hebrew word vanity or meaningless or 
feudal, or however you want to interpret that, translate that. Uh, he uses it 35 times in 29 verses. It's pretty obvious what the major theme of the book of Ecclesiastes. Solomon wants us to know that everything is meaningless. Everything is meaningless. Everything is devoid of real significance. Everything is fleeting. It's here one moment, and poof, it's gone the next. Everything is meaningless. But that might seem to kind of contradict the words that, uh, or the message that Solomon ends the book with. Fear the Lord and keep his commands. Now, it might appear to be a contradiction, but we need to notice that Solomon doesn't say that fearing the Lord is vanity, nor does he say that keeping the Lord's commands is vanity. Now, if we look at the next couple of verses, we find another phrase that gets used repeatedly throughout the book of Ecclesiastes. Verses 3 and 4, we read, What advantage does man have in all his work which he does under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. Now, this phrase, under the sun, is used 29 times in 27 verses in this book. So what does under the sun mean? What does that refer to? It refers to looking at things, looking at life from a worldly perspective. Life under the sun, worldly perspective. The point that he makes by combining these two phrases, meaningless and under the sun, throughout this book, is that everything that we do from a worldly perspective, is absolutely meaningless. It's all vanity. There's no point to any of it, anything that we do from a worldly perspective. Now, the Hebrew word that gets translated as advantage here means uh, you know, a profit or a personal benefit. Uh, what benefit does man have in all his work which he does under the sun? And, of course, that's a rhetorical question because he just said everything is meaningless. So the idea that he's trying to get across is that nothing that a person does for money, nothing that a person does to boost their ego or or any other kind of benefit or profit has any real significance or meaning. What a frightening thing to be reminded of for the person who has devoted their lives to these things. What a frightening thing for somebody, for an athlete, who's thought, This is what my life is all about. And then years later, commits suicide. Now let's make a a clarification very briefly. He's not saying that life can't be enjoyed or that life isn't worth living. You know, he's not saying that. In fact, finding joy in life is another one of the major themes that Solomon repeatedly drives home in Ecclesiastes. For example, he writes in Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verse 24, there is nothing better for a man than to eat and drink and tell himself that his labor is good. This also I have seen, that it is from the hand of God. you gotta, you got to love that. One should eat, drink, and then tell themselves that their labor is is good, that the things that they're doing are good. Maybe because if they don't drink first, they're never going to believe it. You know, I don't know. Uh, you know, I, I wouldn't say, however, that this means that their labor really is good or that their labor really is meaningful. But how will a person ever enjoy what they do? How will they ever enjoy their work or find joy in their work if they don't convince themselves that what they're doing is good 
in some way. And this is a theme that Solomon repeatedly comes back to. For example, uh, he writes, I know that there's nothing better for men than to be happy and to do good while they live, that everyone may eat and drink and find satisfaction in his toil. This is the gift of God. That's from Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 12. Or this one. So I saw that there is nothing better for a man than to enjoy his work, because that's his lot. For who will bring him to see what will happen after him? That's from chapter 3, verse 22. Here's another one. Then I realized that it is good and proper for a man to eat and drink and find satisfaction in his toilsome labor under the sun during the few days of life that God has given him. This is his lot. Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse 18. Or here's, here's a good one. I like this one. So I commend the enjoyment of life because nothing is better for a man under the sun than to eat and drink and be glad. Then joy will accompany him in his work all the days of, of the life God has given him under the sun. You get the point. We're, we're meant to enjoy life. We're meant to find joy in what we do. The premise of the book is that everything is meaningless. Everything is insignificant. Everything is here one second and gone the next. The conclusion, to fear God and to keep his commands. Between the beginning and the end, enjoy life. Find joy in life. It's too short to hate it. It's too short to not enjoy it. You see, when Solomon tells us that life and everything in it is meaningless from a worldly perspective from a worldly point of view he's not telling us that it's not worth living what he means is that we have you know what we have today might be here today it might be gone tomorrow you know so enjoy it while you've got it enjoy what you have because it might not might not be there tomorrow treasure these things but know that they might not be here tomorrow you know maybe that's money maybe that's a relationship maybe it's some possession that you have Don't equate your your self-worth with these things because you might have them today. They might be gone tomorrow. But know this. While we can't hold on to the things that we have, they're not ours forever. It's possible to make them count forever. If it's money that you have today, use it for the sake of something that's eternal, such as the church, such as missions where somebody's eternal destiny is being changed because of what you have put into it. See, the lights don't stay on for free. The electric company, you know, they might be nice, but they're not that nice. They don't give us, you know, free water. You know, we've got to have toilets here. None of this stuff is free. Ministry can be expensive, especially overseas ministries, uh, for, you know, missions. Uh, and it can't happen without some sort of financial support, and it results in things that are eternally significant, a changed eternal destiny. If it's a relationship or a friendship that you have today, use it for the benefit of both yourself and your friend. Is that relationship causing you to grow in Christ-likeness? That's the question you have to ask. Because if it's not, it's meaningless. If it is, it has meaning. These things have eternal significance. Solomon writes, a generation comes and a generation, or generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. What we have, the things that we have, the relationships that we have, they come and go. 
The earth remains. It was here before us. It's going to be here long after us. But the things that we have been given stewardship over are only ours for a season. And we don't know when the end of that season is going to be. Let's continue. Verses 5 and 6. He writes also, The sun rises and the sun sets. And hastening to its place, it rises there again, blowing toward the south, then turning toward the north. The wind continues swirling along, and on its circular courses, the wind returns. Man, this is good stuff. You know, this wasn't written in the last hundred years, you know, when we've got this, uh, you know, satellite technology where we can study wind patterns. This stuff was written a long, long, long time ago. How did he know that the winds of the earth have circular courses in which they change directions? You know, he, he didn't have uh, satellite imagery or, or modern science to help him. He had something better than modern science. He had the inspiration of God. There's no other explanation for knowing this type of stuff 2,500 years before the age of science. How would he know that? God told him. God inspired this. Now, of course, this is just to follow on the heels of verse 4, where he told us that the earth remains forever. These are the types of things that have been happening long before we were here, and they'll continue happening long after we're gone. Uh, These are things that have been going on for at least several thousand years. What doesn't last several thousand years? Basically, the things we've talked about. Anything that we have stewardship over. We don't have the possessions that we have for thousands of years. And what Solomon is trying to drive home here is the fact that this this cycle of nature that God has set into motion, which doesn't break, should cause a person to stop and to reflect and to realize, man, I am just a vapor in the wind. I'm I'm here today, and tomorrow there's no promise of. But these things are going to keep on going. How meaningless, then, am I? if I don't affect any of these things. The earth, the sun, the wind, they all remain in these monotonous yearly cycles, year in and year out. And by the way, so does water, which is why uh, he continues by writing in verse 7, All the rivers flow into the sea, yet the sea is not full. To the place where the rivers flow, there they flow again. And of course, Modern science has helped us understand how this all works. The sun evaporates the water from the ocean, and you know it goes into the clouds. The clouds go out over the land, and it rains. And so you've got this cycle over and over and over again where the sea never gets full, and it's always been like that. But Solomon wants us to realize, the reason he's pointing this out, he wants us to realize that there's something of a mystery to this thing that we call, that we call life, which is something that we will never be able to fully understand on our own. That's, that's why it's a mystery. And that's why he writes in uh, chapter 3, verse 11, God has made everything beautiful in its time. He has also set eternity in the hearts of men. Yet they cannot fathom what God has done from the beginning to the end. See, we see all these things around us. We see the cycles of the seasons and, the, and nature and how it, it's all in this huge cycle, and yet we can't wrap our finite minds around how it all works, how, where it all came from, where it all started. What is this really all about? Because when it comes to wrapping our minds around the eternity that God has set in our hearts, let's be honest, we're kind of like people who have an incurable addiction to crossword puzzles, and yet we have a vocabulary that's limited to about 100 words. And like, uh, totally, count as three of those words. 
So, yeah, we, we'll never get there. We can't wrap our minds around the eternity that God has set in our hearts. Similarly, Solomon says in chapter 7, verse 14, When times are good, be happy. When times are bad, consider. God has made the one as well as the other, but a man cannot discover anything about his future. That's some good advice, isn't it? I, I, I can follow that first part. When times are good, be happy. I, no problem. I, I, I can do that. I think we can all do that. I think we can all manage that. We like it when times are good. The problem is neither God nor the Bible ever promises that times will always be good. And we don't respond to the second half of that equation to consider or to, to ponder or reflect when times are bad. We don't do that as easily as we do the first. When times are good, we figure, wow, you know, this is how life is supposed to be, right? But then when times are bad, the tempter comes and we're tempted to be filled with doubts. We're tempted to be skeptical about God and his promises. But Solomon reminds us that times that are good and times that are bad are both what they are, good or bad, by God's hand. He is the one who gives us good times. He is the one who gives us bad times. But consider and reflect all you want. What Solomon is telling us here is that you have no idea what the future holds. Man, people have been trying to figure out what the future holds for how many thousands of years? Basically since the inception of creation. You know, we, we, we have all these, uh, all these new age mystical ways of trying to tell the future. And I mean, totally bogus. Um, but yeah, we, we want to know the future, and yet we don't even know what tomorrow brings. And if we don't know what tomorrow brings, man, we, we sure don't know what the day after tomorrow, or the day after that, or the day after that, or the day after that brings. We have no idea. We can't discover anything about the future. Life is filled with mystery. We can't figure it out. On our own, we will never hold the key that unlocks the mysteries of our existence and of our lives because God is the sole owner and possessor of that key. He holds it in his hand and nobody takes it from him. It is his. Only God understands and knows what tomorrow holds. There's nothing that remains a mystery to God. That's why life is meaningless from a worldly perspective. We can't figure it out. We can't make any sense of it here or there. Consider some of the paradoxes that Solomon presents us with. Uh, this is actually kind of funny. Uh, Ecclesiastes chapter 6, verse 1. He writes, I've seen another evil under the sun. It weighs heavily on men. God gives man wealth and possessions and honors so that he lacks nothing his heart desires. But God does not enable him to enjoy them. A stranger enjoys them instead. That sounds like uh, President Obama's you know, domestic economic policy, doesn't it? A stranger enjoys them instead. <laughs> you know, God gives a person all kinds of blessings. Everything their heart desires. All the person could ever wish for. But then, once they have it, all they want is more and more and more and more. Does that not describe us and our culture perfectly? We are the wealthiest nation 
in the history of the world. And God doesn't allow us to enjoy it. That's because our wealth, our prosperity, our blessings, they become our idols. The things that we have, we focus on the gift rather than the giver. And so what we see is that there's no satisfaction in money. None. It really does not buy happiness. And don't tell me, oh, but it does buy chocolate, and that's a close second. Yeah, I've heard that one. I'm not going to go for that. Solomon never says that, so I'm not going to preach on that. No, instead, the more money we have, the greater the emptiness we feel inside of us. And the more we love what it is we're trying to get more and more of. And I think I've probably told you before that when I was a casino dealer, I made really good money. Whether I was working part-time or full-time, I made some good money. But I had no satisfaction in it. I'm reminded of, uh, of, of Alan Iverson, uh, who uh, was a basketball player, a famous basketball player, the number one pick of the 1996 NBA draft. And he made tens of millions of dollars. Tens of millions of dollars. And he bought as much stuff as he possibly could. And today, it's all gone. He's so deeply in debt, a judge has prevented him from buying jewelry because he will not be able to pay it back. And so now he's not good enough to play in the NBA anymore, so he's trying to play in Turkey, or maybe he's not even in Turkey anymore. A couple years ago he was in Turkey, and he's trying to catch up. But what he had, it didn't give him any sense of fulfillment. It didn't give him any satisfaction. Just like when I was working in the casinos and I made all this money, it gave me no satisfaction because what the, truth, the truth was that my money owned me. It, it might have looked like I had all this money, but the fact was my money owned me. And that's what uh, the love and the pursuit of money does. It makes us feel like we are in control when really, so easily... It can be the money that's in control of us. You need proof of that? Think of all the insane, and I mean that, insane things that people do for money. Sell drugs. Sell their bodies. Steal. You know, and these things just represent the, 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 the more degenerate things that people will do for money, but we all know that the list doesn't end there. We all know that people will do selfish, stupid, crazy things for money, they'll lie, they'll abandon, they'll cheat, they'll backstab. We see it happen all the time. The list goes on and on. Let's continue. Uh, Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verses 8 to 10. Solomon says, All things are wearisome. Man is not able to tell it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor is the ear filled with hearing. That which has been is that which will be, and that which has been done is that which will be done. So there is nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which one might say, see this, it is new? Already it has existed for ages which were before us. You see, we are never satisfied with the things of this world. So why approach it from a worldly perspective? No matter how much a person sees, they'll want to see more. No matter how much a person hears, it's never enough. 
We want to see or hear something new and exciting. That, that's human nature. We want to see things that are, and hear things that are new and exciting because the old things don't hold the same appeal to us anymore. The, the things that we experienced before, the highs of our life, we can't go back and get to that point. That's why you, t- you, you talk to people at your you know, 25 or 50 year class reunion and they'll talk about all the glory that they had in high school because they're looking for just a glimpse of that stuff again. It wasn't enough. It wasn't satisfying. It didn't give them a satisfaction that lasted them the rest of their lives. Psychology calls this the fundamental wish for new experience. The fundamental wish for new experience. We want to see things that are new. We want to hear things that are new because there's a rush. There's an excitement. But Solomon reminds us that it will never be enough to satisfy us permanently and that there's nothing new under the sun. And so if we seek satisfaction in the things of this world, the result will inevitably be that we will become jaded and cynical people. And so what we see is that all of the things of this world are wearisome. We pursue them. We, we invest our energy chasing after them, seeking the thrill, only to find that it may have given us a temporary boost of excitement, but then that boost of excitement is, is gone. And so we, we, we seek it some other way, whether it's retelling the story or finding something new. If any of us was meant to continue this cycle of living, of, of going to bed at night and waking up in the next, uh, you know, the next morning and going through this cycle forever and ever, then maybe all of this would make a whole lot of sense. Maybe it would all have meaning. But we all know that this cycle won't continue forever, which renders it all empty of real meaning. And that's why Solomon writes in chapter 2, verse 14, the wise man has eyes in his head while a fool walks in darkness but I came to realize that the same fate overtakes them both. And I thought in my heart, the fate of the fool will overtake me also. What then do I gain by being wise? And I said in my heart, this too is meaningless. The wisdom that Solomon had, this incredible gift from God, was meaningless. Why? Because he didn't always exercise it. He didn't use it. He made a lot of mistakes for a long time because he walked away from it. And what a great realization for Solomon to, come, uh, to have come to in his old age. The wisdom that the Lord granted him was completely meaningless because the wise man and the fool eventually meet the same fate, death. Death is always there. It's like an exclamation point that we're waiting to get to. And so Solomon realized that from a worldly perspective. A wise and wealthy king was ultimately exactly the same as the poorest and the most foolish of peasants, because death levels the playing field. Death is the great equalizer. On the one hand, you know, we have a a promising young woman who graduates from the best medical school in the nation. And upon graduation, she lands a job as a resident uh, resident surgeon at one of the most advanced hospitals in the nation. But as she's moving, as she's driving to move to her new residence, a large semi-truck comes up next to her, blows a tire, veers sharply into her lane, and in less than three seconds, she is history. She's gone forever. Her plans to become a top surgeon are gone 
The excitement that her parents had for her is lost forever. All the potential, all the time that she had invested in gaining knowledge over the years, in three seconds, it's gone. And at the same time, there's the grandfather who sits in the same chair in his nursing home that he sat in for the last nine years. And sometimes his children and his grandchildren who had expected him to pass away a long time ago, sometimes they'll come and visit him, but most of the time he can't even remember who they are. He can't even remember their names. And it's as, it's as if death has somehow overlooked him or, or is running late for an appointment. And from an earthly perspective, we say, how tragic that one dies, and at the same time, how tragic that one lives. Death levels the playing field. We're all destined to meet the same fate, no matter how rich, no matter how poor we are, and no matter how educated or uneducated we are. Death levels the playing field, and so it's all meaningless because death is coming head on at every single one of us, and not one of us knows when that's going to be. But it's important that we realize, you know, you, you read this and you might think, wow, Solomon is really cynical, man. He's, he's really become jaded over the years. I mean, I'm tempted to, re, uh, to, to read that into this, to think, oh man, he is cynical. But he's not. He's not a cynic. He sounds like one, but he's not. You see, with life, we think, you know, that we've got two options. We can live it up or, or give it up. But Solomon wants to realize that there is a third option, and that is to look up, to make any sense of this life whatsoever. We must look to God who gives every person their lot in life. Whatever a person has, whether it's riches or whether it's nothing, that's their lot in life that God has given them. And this is a theme that underlies everything that Solomon has examined. He's examined everything from every perspective. From a worldly perspective, it's meaningless. But this mystery becomes something that we can live with when we realize that God is in control of it all. That God is in control. If we can't even begin to figure it out or figure out how to control it somehow or slow it down, how are we supposed to enjoy it if we can't make any sense of it? How do we sleep at night? By trusting in God's sovereignty. That's where we find peace by knowing that he's in control, by knowing that he's sovereign, and that there's not one detail in all of creation that has escaped his attention. Everything has a purpose. God has a plan. He's the one who puts things into motion where they are and when they're there. In Acts chapter 17, verse 26, Paul, writes that, uh, Paul says this, he, speaking about God, he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation. In other words, you live in the United States right now, today, because God decided that this would be the time for you to exist and this would be the place for you to exist. God determined when we would exist and where we would exist. He gave us everything that we have and the purpose of all the things that we have and where we are and when we exist. Look at the next verse, verse 27, Acts chapter 17, verse 27. That they would seek God, if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. To make sense of life, every single one of us has to come to grips, has to come to, to terms with God's sovereignty. 
That's the only way that we can make sense of all of it. We have to accept the fact that there are so many things that we can't understand, that we'll never understand. And so to pursue understanding about everything and about every circumstance, you know, why is God allowing this to happen? Why is God allowing that to happen? We'll never find it. We'll never find answers to everything. But trusting in God's sovereignty and knowing, this is the key, and knowing that he is good. If he's sovereign but not good, it doesn't mean anything. We can still be scared. But he's sovereign and he's good. And because he's sovereign and good, he's more than able to work out all things for the good of those who love him. That's Romans 8.28. The truth is that everything in life is meaningless. Everything is meaningless. You'll notice that in the sermon title today, I put ellipses points after everything is meaningless. That's because that's not the end of the statement. Everything is meaningless apart from Christ, who is the one who gives meaning to our lives, who gives significance to our lives and the things that we do with our lives. And trusting in his goodness, trusting in his righteousness, trusting in his grace, these things allow us to enjoy the things that we have in life. Because from that perspective, we don't own anything that we have anyway. He owns it all. He's in control of it all. So those things can't control us. Those things can't own us, right? See, the whole point of this book of Ecclesiastes, I told you we'd get through the whole thing. The whole point of this book is really pretty straightforward. Enjoy life. Enjoy your life. Live it to the fullest, but let your actions be governed and directed by the fear of the Lord and your observance of his commands. Because if you don't, it's meaningless. From a worldly perspective, everything is meaningless. And when we realize that he's good and that he's completely sovereign and that he is just, that he will punish every evil act and reward every good act, we learn that we're free to trust and obey him. And that when we do that, life has meaning. We can start to understand. Life can't be figured out. And God never promises In in all the Bible, he never promises to give us all the answers. But you know, answers won't ultimately satisfy us. Even having all the answers, it won't ultimately satisfy us. So God never promised it. What he did offer us, however, is himself. He didn't offer us the answers, but he did offer us himself. Because only he can satisfy us the human spirit. And that's why Jesus died on Calvary. That's why the Father sent the Son to pay for our sins so that God could fulfill that offer with the promise of a life-altering, transforming relationship with him. Uncommon sense tells us this. We have one chance, one chance to live a meaningful life. And the only way to do that is to keep God and his glory at the center of everything that we do. And I hope you guys will be back next week. We're going to be studying the book of Nehemiah, which is about doing something meaningful for God. That is the whole theme of the book of Nehemiah. But we all have one chance. One chance to live a significant life. One chance to make a difference. So don't waste it. Don't let it slip away. Live each moment. And use everything that you have, everything that you've been blessed with, 
whether it's your next breath or whether it's your house or whatever it might be, use it all for the glory of God. That is where real meaning in life is found. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you gave us this book. You know the depths of our hearts, that we are constantly seeking knowledge and understanding of our own existence. And you put that need in us. You put that desire in us. We have the need to, or the desire to, to feel fulfilled and to feel happy, Lord. And we thank you that only you can truly bring us lasting satisfaction. And only you can add meaning and significance to our lives. Lord, I pray that we would turn away from the things of this life which have no meaning, which are here today and gone tomorrow, and we're not using those things for you. We're not keeping you at the middle. Teach us to either put you at the middle or to throw those things away, God, whatever they might be, that we would be faithful stewards with the things that you have blessed us with, our possessions, our relationships. God, you belong at the center of all of them. They are all yours, and they are all for your glory. So teach us to be faithful stewards. Teach us to be vessels of grace and mercy that can do something meaningful in this life because you've given us grace, and you've given us this transforming relationship to make us new people who are more like you and your goodness. Teach us to trust in you, Lord, when we don't understand Jesus' name. Amen. This message has been brought to you by BibleStudyPodcast.org. We are a listener-supported ministry. If this is your first time listening to us, we thank you so much for joining us, and we ask nothing further from you. But if this is a ministry that you rely on for regular spiritual teaching, we do depend on your financial support to keep us going and growing. If you'd like to make a donation to BibleStudyPodcast.org to keep us going and reaching thousands of people around the world, you can go to our website, BibleStudyPodcasts.org, and you can make a donation on the right-hand side by clicking on the support box. Again, we do rely on your support, and we thank you so much for your financial participation in this ministry, which enables us to continue in our mission of teaching timeless truths in these truthless times. God bless you. Thank you so much for listening today and keep growing closer to Jesus. Beautiful, you're beautiful. Your love is sweet and beautiful and I will stay here waiting for beautiful. Beautiful, you're beautiful. Your love is wild and bountiful. Yes, all I need is more of my beautiful Jesus love sick worshippers you want love sick worshippers so alive and desperate at your feet Jesus love sick worshippers we are love sick worshippers in our hearts I will be complete